rather so dry, so serious. The third chapter brings a spot of color because finally in the third chapter, after having studied the essentials of consciousness, after having studied the essentials of yoga as modality of reaching that consciousness, Patanjali starts presenting some spectacular applications and as I said from the beginning of this chapter, this is perhaps the most tantric chapter of all of them in, a, in an enlarged understanding. Tantric in the meaning that while most of the Yoga Sutra and being very much attuned to the Vedantic tradition and others, they are following the realization of the transcendent, of the Purusha aspect, the third chapter from Yoga Sutra describes things which have to do with Prakriti, not with Purusha, in particular a long range of paranormal abilities, of Siddhis, which some people in Yoga, noticing this contradiction, this apparent contradiction of third, they even say, well, those Siddhis were put there, but they were more like a temptation, they are more like a trap, they are more like a warning that these things are possible, but you shouldn't really be interested into them. Here is the point where the Vedantic Sankhya type of vision of Patanjali, in which he distinguishes so clearly Purusha from Prakriti, the spirit from nature or manifestation, here is where, again, Patanjali brings them back to a common denominator. This is the place where Patanjali suddenly jumps from all that analysis about the liberation of consciousness, and he also describes applications of the power of the mind, of the power of consciousness and others, and he describes it, so those of you who have been here surely remember that, under the magnificent concept of Samyama, which we loosely translate as identification, absorptive identification. And until now, we have been there where Patanjali described the identification as principle, and already in the last sutra that we have commented, Patanjali was describing a first paranormal ability which results from that. These paranormal abilities, again, they give a drop of color because many people relate, it's more spectacular, it's more attractive, it's like, wow, now you are talking, now you are saying something. The other things with Purusha and the liberation and the elimination of the Vasanas and of the Kleshas and all those, while strictly spiritual and puritanically spiritual, radically spiritual, for some people were sounding a bit abstract. The people who have this spirit of the Buddha, the, period, the people who have this spirit of Sankhya, this spirit of Vedanta, they love uh, that information because ultimately that's the spiritual core. But this chapter is bringing a counterbalance, is bringing again something more down to earth, so to speak. Although that thing which is down to earth can at the same time, as some people put it, be a trap, be a limitation. Because 
In the Sutra number 16, it was about meditating, performing Samyama on the threefold change of the stages of the mind and having thus the knowledge of the past and of the future. And some people say, well, if you have the gift of prophecy or the gift of reading the Akashic uh, cliches, uh, clips or not, you can still detach your spirit and you can still reach a state of enlightenment. So some people would say that chapter number three actually describes things which are collateral from a spiritual standpoint. In the Tantric tradition, we believe that Shiva is Shakti and Shakti is Shiva, and therefore everything which addresses the non-manifestation is valid for the manifestation in a way, and everything which points to the manifestation indirectly points to the non-manifestation as well. And that is why actually this chapter, from a Tantric metaphysical standpoint, is very welcome, because it at the same time shows some of the materialization of the spiritual state. If this chapter would be completely absent, it would be like Patanjali would talk about an enlightenment which is fruitless, abstract. It's like, and so what? Who can guarantee that if I get that bizarre enlightenment that he's talking about, am I getting, am I going to be happy, or am I going to be fulfilled, or am I going to enjoy it? But in the moment when he relates it with the manifestation, it's like I see an externalization of that enlightenment. That enlightenment is not only in Sahasrara, not only in Purusha, not only in the void, but see, here he gives some signs of the great yogi that at the same time has some manifestation in Prakriti as well. It is true that Patanjali, because he speaks about Raja Yoga and very much about the yoga of the mind, the yoga of concentration, meditation, contemplation, the yoga of Samyama, because of this much of what Patanjali describes is actually focused on Ajna. But still, if you think at our metaphysical symbols, Ajna is part of that egg. I always draw the manifestation as an egg and Purusha like something which is tangent to it, beyond it, transcendent. When we talk about accomplishments of Ajna Chakra, which is the ocean of mind, the pure mental energy, actually at that time we are speaking about things of Prakriti. So, because Patanjali is not teaching just a Sahasrara Yoga, just a pure Atma Yoga, because Patanjali is teaching a Yoga which, yes, not so much on Mulakara, not so much on Svadhisthana, not so much on Manipura, but still on Ajna at least, and it still touches manifestation, Prakriti, even, at, even if it does it at some very high levels, at some very refined levels, at some very spiritual levels. This is how you should understand this chapter and what follows next, in which as you are going to see there follows an avalanche of applications of Samyama. The first one in the Sutra number 16 was Samyama on this threefold process of all phenomena, thus understanding what past present and future mean. As you are going to see, actually, Patanjali, uh, perhaps on purpose, perhaps this is because the way his meditation has been unfolding when writing this text, when putting these things down and writing them down, 
Patanjali himself starts in Samyama by talking by Samyama of a very abstract nature because when I read the Sutra number 16 that you are to perform Samyama on the threefold change of the evolution of all systems that's like a very abstract how are you going to concentrate your mind on a subject which is so volatile so philosophical so abstract so and you are supposed to do some yama on it to focus on it until you become one with it until you have concentration meditation contemplation simultaneously upon it that precisely it the objects of concentration are sometimes very refined, like ideas, concepts, which are basically meaning objects from Vijnanamaya Kosha, objects which belong to the mental body and to the mental universe, such as concepts, ideas, and sometimes the concentration of the mind is done upon objects which belong to Anamaya Kosha, which means parts of your body, a black dot on a wall, and things which are absolutely physical and concrete. And most people, if you tell them, oh well, do some yama on a black dot on a wall, or on a photo of Swami Shivananda, they get the point, they understand but at least theoretically, how it is to do that. But when you tell to them, make some yama on the understanding of the three, triple, triadic becoming of things, all these three, threefold division of things, it's like, I wouldn't know where even to start such a concentration, because I'm asked to concentrate on something which I can't, which you can hardly think of. So, the very object of concentration is a very, very unstable support. As you are going to see, the Samyamas which Patanjali describes are in the beginning quite abstract. He speaks about concepts, emotions, and things which are so very difficult to grasp. And as he goes through the text, he starts coming to more down-to-earth Samyamas, which usually people in yoga, people reading the Yoga Sutra, find them very rewarding find them very colorful, like now you are talking, this is something which I can understand, I can go home and try this trick which Patanjali talks about. But the tricks of doing some yama upon abstract subject, this, uh, this is a difficult stunt for most people, because again, the very beginning of this concentration is fuzzy, is unclear is in a certain way undetermined or undifferentiated almost. And that is why we continue and the first Samyamas will be still quite vast. I will try to give explanations as usually as I have done until now from the standpoint of the Tantric tradition, from the standpoint of energies and chakras and this very precise down-to-earth style that we have and at the same time you are going to see that as we advance through these sutras the subject is becoming more uh, exciting because it's like uh, Patanjali becomes more and more accessible. This being said, let us now look at sutra number 17. In the sutra number 17, one reading of it would be as follows. The word, the object, and the mental content associated to it, or with it, are in a mixed state because of mutual superimposition or confusion. By performing Samyama on these three separately, 
knowledge of the language and ideas of all beings arise. This idea simply says that our knowledge manifests at different levels. There is an object of knowledge, there is a word which defines that knowledge, the concept, the nama, as we say, and there is of course an idea, a mental content. Therefore, we are actually speaking about different levels of perception. There is a very sophisticated theory of perception in Indian philosophy, how the mind gets to perceive the objects and so on, and here Patanjali alludes precisely to that. Patanjali says the different levels of perception happen so quickly that we never distinguish between them. We never distinguish between the object and the name which is given to that object. If, for example, you look to a mat, to a yoga mat, your mind has to call it a mat, because if you don't call it a mat and you just look at it, you are in a state of suspension. It is the very, you are in a state of cancelling. It is the very nature of the mind that to feel secure, the mind is always trying to label everything. This is the blue floor, that's a mat, that's an electric wire, this is this, this is that. The mind needs to label, to put everything in a drawer. And a state in which you would look without defining would be like a state of prostration, would be like a state of awe, would be like a state in which you would be amazed. And actually this is where the high states of consciousness are going. For example, in Samadhi, in the state of Samadhi, there is no labeling of what you perceive, because the mind does not have the capacity, the level, the time, the energy for labeling things. Samadhi is called by the Japanese Zen master Satori, a direct vision. You see, but you do not think about what you see. You see, but you do not judge, you do not label, you do not uh, put it in drawers and classify. And that is why Patanjali says the mind is used that when you see an object, that object is immediately related to a name, and that name is related to a mental concept, which simply says some objects, for example, can create me repulsion, can give me rejection. Some objects can make me remember a sad event in my life and make me be melancholic or sad or something. That is why a, an object relates to the name, to the conceptualization, and to what I feel about that object or what I think. And these three happen in a fraction of a second. It's like, as soon as I see, my mind immediately jumps to stage two. Ah, that's a mat. And then somebody tells me, oh, my own mat is dirty, and now I remember, and this is producing me a state of discomfort. And in this way, but the connections, the associations, are made very quickly. And Patanjali says, if you can perform some yama on these three separately, separately, this separation is a very big thing. This separation is already very advanced spiritually. So the person who would be able to perform samyama on the object separate from its name, on the name separate from the object, and on the state of mind separated from those two, that person would be an excellent meditator, would be already a person very, very advanced spiritually. 
That is why this Samyama is another difficult Samyama. It's not a Samyama for beginners because it gives something very interesting and Patanjali says this gives knowledge of the language and ideas of all the beings. Commentators like Vyasa and others, they say basically that this makes you understand the, any language spoken in this universe. It makes you understand the language of animals and even of plants. It's exactly like a clairvoyant person of a very special type of clairvoyant would understand what animals want or say or would understand the language of nature because according to such high spirit even the trees speak to us but we don't understand what the trees say. If you go with the scissors towards a plant and want to cut it off that plant is screaming in agony because of its fear and anticipation of what is coming. And yet, how many people feel the scream of plants when plants are cut or mutilated or others? And that is why the whole nature speaks a language, not to mention that if you want to put it like this, even the stars speak a language. Even heaven speaks a language. The astrologers used to say that astrology is reading the language of God because God writes messages but writes them in a very special alphabet. That alphabet are the stars. So if you know how to look at the zodiac and at the sky, you can read what God has to say. That's the language of heavens. So in this way, even the vault of the heaven is an alphabet. It's a projection screen. But we don't understand that language. Only when you do astrology for a lifetime and you do samyama on the stars all the time, you start having an intuitive understanding and you can start making prophecies and you can start understanding laws of nature and things like these. On a lower level, of course, we are talking about speaking in tongues, understanding languages that you have never spoken. We are talking about understanding animals and being able to communicate with animals and other forms of life. And Patanjali says that's come, that is coming from understanding the concatenation of object, name given to that object, that is the mental name, the Nama, like in Nama Rupa, the name and form, and finally the mental representation or idea of that. Why? Because this chain is different from creature to creature. The animals also have a primitive way of representing reality in which their brain sees an object, identifies it in a primitive way and then has a perception about it like I'm not going to touch fire because fire burned me last week and therefore I know it's painful and I'm not touching fire again. Even the animals have a mental representation or a mental state concerning objects or realities and therefore the chain is the same but it is like the animals use a different interface, a different converter, a different dictionary. So the same thing is translated in other ways. If you would have the code, it would be, you would be able to decode the brains of animals <coughs> and of any creature and <coughs> the understanding of the language of nature. <coughs> and Patanjali says, to obtain that, you have to perform Samyama <coughs> on these three phases of perception. 
on the perception of the object separately, on the perception of the names that we associate with that, and on the mental representation and emotion which becomes associated to that. That's a difficult samyama which requires a certain psychological refinement. It also requires an incredible acuity, a vigilance, a certain speed in the mind because it means to be aware of things which normally happen like plop, plop, plop. They happen in a fraction of a second, one after another, and to be able to split them is already a start. Nevertheless, Patanjali uh, is mentioning this Samyama as the second to be able to understand any language, including those of animals and of nature. The Sutra number 18 describes another Samyama. It says, by direct perception of the residual impressions or samskaras, and performing samyama upon them, therefore, knowledge of previous births arises. This is mental, psychological, it is somewhere in Vishnana Mayakosha, somewhere in Manamaya Kosha, and it already is a little bit more accessible. Patanjali says, perform samyama, which means concentrate, meditate, contemplate and reach a state of absorption, of identification upon the samskaras. What are the samskaras? The samskaras are the residues in your mind, the subconscious residues in the mind, which simply says those dormant, latent aspects in the mind, samskaras, some texts call them vasanas, some texts make small differences between samskaras and vasanas, but roughly they are at the same level, and by performing samyama on them. What are the samskaras? The samskaras say that, for example, one of you can, for example, discover that you are a very proud person. It may not necessarily be a painful pathological pride, although in a strictly spiritual meaning, pride is a, an element which is demonic. For example, in Christian mysticism, pride is the ultimate offense. To be proud is much worse than killing somebody or being violent, or because pride is the fall of the devil. Pride is the cause of fall of Lucifer, of Satan. And that is why uh, pride, of course, has ultimately a negative connotation. But in some people's life, Pride can be a mild factor which didn't show yet its dragon teeth, its really bad side. And some people, for some people, pride is even a way of going out of Zvadistana. Everybody is a jellyfish in Zvadistana and I have pride. At least I'm having a spine, you know. I'm not a jellyfish. I'm at least on Manipura. I'm not on Zvadistana. Instead of being a Zvadistanistic non-entity, I'm a Japanese samurai. Surely, a Japanese samurai can do much more demonic things than a jellyfish, because a jellyfish is at least strengthless, cannot do too much evil as well, because of being just a jellyfish. The more power I have, the bigger the risk becomes of me falling and doing something stupid. And let's say, let's come back to our example, a person notices I have pride. I don't know why, but when subjected with some things, I prefer to react with a certain pride. 
This pride, which my neighbor doesn't have, is a samskara, which means somewhere, somehow, in a previous life, I have developed this pride. How could this pride have developed into me? Well, it could have been developed if, for example, I have been an aristocrat. If I have been a Japanese daimyo and everybody kissed my big toe, then of course I became proud and it was required of me to behave with pride. All my subjects did not expect to see me dragging myself through the mud with humbleness because I had to represent them. Even more so if I was a king, even if I was a very spiritual king, Still, when I was sitting and talking with other heads of state, with other crowned heads, when I was deciding the fate of my nation, of the nation to whom I was the king, I had to be strong, I had to be proud, I had to be great, because else I wouldn't be fit to be a king. I would be having the temperament of a servant, not the temperament of a king. And therefore, if one in one previous life I have been a king, naturally I had to develop some sort of vanity, pride. Is it true that some kings and aristocrats develop a stupid pride and vanity, develop an aberrant pride and vanity, and it can become demonic or negative? Sure, it most often happens so, because there is no spiritual education, which should say, until here and no further. But if I'm having that, I can develop a measured pride. If I'm not having that, I can develop an immeasurable pride, which is basically negative. In this life, I notice that even as a three-year-old child, I tend to be proud. Some parents are frightened. They say, I don't know what small Napoleon, my little Walter, is. Because little Walter behaves like he's the king of the family, and he gives orders to everybody, and you cannot convince him, and he's the most stubborn of them all, and we don't know how little Walter became the way he became, because he behaves like this since he was three years old. The truth is, little Walter has samskaras of pride. Where do those samskaras come from? From a life where he was powerful enough, and therefore he developed those samskaras. And therefore, Patanjali starts the other way around. Patanjali says, if you identify a samskara, like some of you says, I am an analytic type of person. Where does analytic come from? Another one says, I am a paranoid type of person. Where does paranoid come from? Another one says, I am a bold type of person. Where does boldness come from? Another one says, I am a proud type of person. Where does pride come from? And Patanjali says, if you perform some yama on these things, if you manage to see some of your samskaras, some of the things which pop up in you, automatically, which you had them since you were a child. The samskaras are the things which come with, without you asking for them. They pop up there like weeds in a garden. They grow up although you never planted them and usually they are a pain in the neck. And Patanjali says when you identify these kind of weeds, which can be useful sometimes, they are weeds which make beautiful flowers, so you can use them as ornamental shrubbery in your garden. I'm not saying always that the samskaras have to be immediately and mercilessly destroyed. You can use them in your lifetime. But these samskaras, they need to be identified. 
So first of all, we have an action of self-knowledge, of awareness. We have to identify which the samskaras are. Are, are you a coward? Are you brave? Are you proud? Are you humble? Are you this? Are you that? See the samskaras. And then Patanjali says, by making samyama upon these samskaras, you can have the knowledge of your previous birth. That is the Raja, the Raja Yogic method. There are other methods. Uh, the tantric one which we teach in the school, for example, and others, but that, that, this is the Raja Yogic method for identifying previous lives. If, for example, you have been a warrior in a previous life, it will be seen in this. If you don't have that thing which comes from being a warrior, then you haven't been a warrior in a previous life, period. And if you have it, where does it come from? Because you haven't been a warrior in this life. And therefore, remember that the samskaras are the symbol of something which is older, deeper. Patanjali in one word says, if you focus on these, like you simply take a thing, like I am brave, I don't know why, but I've got courage. I've got more courage than anybody around me. I don't know where this courage, and I meditate and think about this courage and contemplate it from all sides and focus on it and dwell on it and taste it and feel it and contemplate again on it, then automatically I start seeing where it comes from and it can give me knowledge, images and other things which belong to previous lives. This is a way of following the thread back because the samskaras of today are effects of, cause, of causes which proceed from previous lives. That therefore, this is a method of access to previous lives through Ajna Chakra by performing Samyama on the Samskaras. It is a useful exercise which I am advising that you should try at home. It is still a bit abstract. Some of you wouldn't know where to start. But start with the self-analysis. Start with self-knowledge. Do your own horoscope. Study your Enneagram typology. Study your temperamental constitution. Study whatever you can study about yourself and then understand how you are, what you are, how, how things go in what you are. Here we go further. The Sutra number 19 says, By performing Samyama on the Pratyayas or notions and concepts, knowledge of another's mind arises. Here it's a very delicate one, which is again a bit abstract. Simply Patanjali says, make samyama on concepts. That's what I said. It's so difficult to focus on concepts, notions, ideas. Those belong to Vijnana Mayakosha. A part of them, some of the very, very concrete concepts, may belong to the upper levels of Manomayakosha, the astral body. But still these things are so immaterial. That's why still we are at a quite elevated level. Patanjali is describing still a difficult samyama here and says by performing samyama on these concepts, you simply understand this world of concepts. It's like at a certain point of the subconscious mind, we all, we are sharing a common world. A typical example is the world of the archetypes. Archetypes and symbols are something which we share. For example, a triangle pointing upward, or a circle, or other symbols, 
are archetypal and being archetypal they automatically resonate with people's subconscious mind with a deep level of the subconscious mind and they produce effects either you understand symbols or not either you like it or not either you wish it or not and that is why the at the level of the symbols it's like we all share a common world it's exactly like we all walk but we are up to our ankles in water. There is a part which we share. Up to our ankles we are all bathed in water. We all walk through a riverbed. We all walk through a pool with water. And there is a level which we all share. If for example that water becomes hot, everybody is going to feel that it's hot water because we are all with our feet in the same water. It's like at a certain deep level of the mind, and the deeper you go the more this is true, we start finding things which are common. This is what Jung described as the collective subconscious mind, as the something which is common to all at a profound level. And therefore Patanjali speaks about that level, because he says at the level of the concept of these vikalpas, uh, of these uh, pratyayas, as he calls them here, automatically you start having access at the mind of everybody. And if you have access at the mind of everybody, you have knowledge of another one's mind. You simply understand other people's mind, which theoretically means also, it's like mind reading. It's like some sort of, I know what you are thinking. I can read your mind because I'm at the level from where all minds start. However, this understanding of the mind is at a very basic level, at the level of the archetypes and symbols, as I said. But from the archetypes and symbols, or from the levels of Vijnana Maya Kosha, the human being has also a Mano Maya Kosha, a Prana Maya Kosha, and a Ana Maya Kosha. And therefore there exists a crystallization of those concepts in flesh. We are the crystallization of ideas in flesh, after all. And that is why the fact that I know the origin doesn't mean that I know the form of the stalactite or the stalagmite which crystallizes from it. Because it's exactly like a stalactite or a stalagmite in a cave is becoming a crystallization of something that drips and drips and drips and solidifies and grows in a certain form. And this means that the, this knowledge about which Patanjali speaks does not refer to a knowledge of one's mind in detail. Like I can read your mind and it's like a telegraph sheet. I'm thinking this, point. I'm thinking this, point. No, it's more in general concepts. It's a general knowledge. Like for example, with this kind of samyama, you can for example feel a person and suddenly you can feel this is a deeply positive person. I don't know why, but I feel, for example, that this man or this woman is a good person. A person that is, I don't know, compassionate, beneficial, generous, kind, good in a certain way. I don't really know what they think in this second, what their family of thoughts is. I feel their general quality. I feel that this is the kind of person who is kind of like this. How exactly in particulars is this person deriving from that archetype, deriving from that general type, 
this is more difficult to say and it can be done in other ways not through this samyama so this samyama is more like a general knowledge of typologies like a general knowledge of mentality which actually the next sutra is going to show there are two sutras two pairs of sutras, two and the next two which complete each other generally, especially in these ones with samyama Patanjali never spends more than one sutra for one Samyama. He can express the idea in one line very clearly. However, there are two of them for which he makes a second sutra to show another aspect by this showing something else and at the same time clarifying the idea. And this is the one of them. So he said by performing Samyama, on the pratyayas, on the concept, knowledge of another's mind arises, but again, knowledge of the general character of another's mind, like a knowledge at a fuzzy level. In Kashmir Shaivism, this level where the thoughts are not yet crystallized, and it's like a semi-consciousness, is called bhavana. Bhavana is like between non-manifestation and manifestation. It's something which is half-outlined. It's a half-sketchy thinking which can be encountered when you have very strong emotions, for example, and when your thinking is not outlined, delineated, millimetrically and clearly. And therefore, Patanjali simply says, this knowledge, this Samyama on the concept, gives you a knowledge of another one's mind at that level of Bhavana, at like a kind of a half-sketched mind, it's a draft, it's a draft of the mind, not in all details. And the sutra number, I have listed it here, some authors choose to give it different numbers, but they don't respect the canonic numbering of the sutras from uh, Patanjali. Some people call the next sutra number 20, and then the next becomes 21 and so forth, logically. Some people prefer to give it the name 19 bits, because this sutra does not exist in some editions of the Yoga Sutra. Some editions don't have it because the commentators have said, well, this was obvious. If, if the man said what he said in the 19, then what he said in the 19 bis is redundant. It's kind of logical. It's repeating the same thing, but from a different angle, like showing the opposite side. However, the great commentators, like Yasa, they have kept this sutra, uh, and again, there is a, a misunderstanding about numbers. Here, because I wanted to keep the skeleton numbers correct, if you'll ever study these things, you'll find some versions using one numbering style and some versions using the others. I called it 19 bis because it is related to the previous one and it is not present in all the versions. And in this 19 bis, he says, but knowledge of that, of other people's minds, because the previous one said by that, you get knowledge of the others' minds. And this says, but knowledge of that, of other people's minds, is not gained with support of mental images, because that has not been the object of Samyama. Actually what I translated here as mental images, and this sutra is very difficult, many authors translate it in different ways, he means not in concrete concepts, because in the moment when you get from a vikalpa, from a pratyaya, as he calls it here, to an image, which is namarupa, the name and the form, you already have come down to a concrete level. 
And here Patanjali says, but the knowledge of the other people's mind is not gained at the level of detailed knowledge, because that has not been the object of Samyama. You made Samyama on the concept, and that's why your knowledge is at the level of the concept. It's not a detailed knowledge at the level of what does Walter think right now. Like I would like to read his mind, like I could hear it in the headphones, in a pair of headphones, like I could hear a voice talking into my ear. That's something else. You can probably do some yama on that, but that's not what Patanjali speaks about. So Patanjali wants to say, to make clear, that there are two levels. The conceptual knowledge, which is like, uh, the, in more general terms, the bhavana level, and the knowledge of the detailed little things. But somebody can say, look, I have known this person. It's exactly like Jesus looks at the rich young man, and he says, sell your things, give them to the poor, and come and follow me. Because he knows that the rich young man cannot do that, because he doesn't need to know what he thinks right now. He knows his type. He knows his typology. He knows the kind to which he belongs. And then Jesus is giving him something for his kind. It's like Jesus could have given him 20 other similar tapases, tasks to this rich young man. And at each and every one of them, this, oh, this rich young man would have failed. Because all of them would have been the kind of things that he was attached to. So Jesus gives him one which is exemplificatory, but again, he does not need to think what that man thinks right now. And that is why that's a, that's a general knowledge. A man like Jesus, if he scans you and he says, I know who you are, I know what type you are, I don't need to really know in detail today how that general thing of yours manifests. That general thing of yours manifests in a hundred and one ways, and we know them all. Humanity has seen them all. What is important for me is to know you at the level of your root. It's exactly like I analyze you and I say you are an apple tree, and I don't need to see the apple tree growing and producing apples, because I know apple trees. Apple trees always produce apples, and always look approximately like this or like that, and they have leaves like this and like that, and therefore I will not be surprised by an apple tree, although I do not stay to analyze its details. It's exactly the same. Patanjali speaks about knowing the root of the things, and when you know the root, the rest, the particular developments are easy to understand, and he therefore makes very clearly, as you can see, very beautifully, this distinction. So, this sutra is absent in some versions, because some people say it's useless. It has been said before that this is a knowledge at the level of the root and not at the level of the fruit. So, it's quite clear. Nevertheless, I have mentioned it, Vyasa himself comments on it. The sutra number 20 already comes to something much, much, much more perceptible suddenly. And uh, here Patanjali comes already to the level of the etheric body, where we have the so-called tanmatras, the subtle elements. If you remember the five chakras, the first five chakras, that's knowledge from the first month of yoga, so you should, if you 
don't remember that, start re-reading your courses on yoga, because it's a sign that you forgot and that you maybe never assimilated. The first five chakras correspond to the five elements, which are illustrated by the five bhutas, the five gross elements, by the five tanmatras, or subtle elements, by the five karmendriyas, action organs, and by the five dhyanendriyas, or perception or knowledge organs. Here and these are at the level of the bodies, Anamaya Kosha, Pranamaya Kosha, Manamaya Kosha, and Vishnanamaya Kosha, in case you never got the knowledge of that or the thought of that. And here Patanjali has already reached at the level of the etheric body. The next concentration, the next Samyama is much more available because Patanjali describes something which is almost physical. We actually do have a physical perception of it, but it is actually an etheric perception because that's where it originally comes. Let's read and analyze. Patanjali says, by performing Samyama on the form of the body, one can check the perceptibility and thus there being no more contact with the light of the eye, the yogin can become invisible. This is the famous Samyama about invisibility. It is one of the two preferred Samyamas in the transcendental meditation of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. In the TM of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, in the TM Siddhi, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi had the ambition of asking his students who are to become teachers and to go in the TMCD program to study one of the two Siddhis described by Maharishi Patanjali, by Patanjali in his Yoga Sutra. And one of them is, of course, levitation. You all probably remember that these people from TM, they tried this frog hopping thing, which they call levitation, and it is, it partly is. And uh, the second one was invisibility. So in the TMCD program, pupils choose. Some of them say, I want to study levitation, and the others say, I want to study invisibility. Those two were the only ones which were chosen, specifically out of the 30 Samyamas, which Patanjali gives here. And this one is a pretty spectacular one, as you can see. It's like, what? To become invisible. It's like, this is like so evident, so flashy, so spectacular. If anybody could do this, it would be like, wow, my God, you know, this is like science fiction, and this would be like a formidable proof of the fact that, wow, the mind indeed can do things, and so on. Patanjali speaks in all seriousness of it. Other yogis have studied it and spoken of it in all seriousness. In the world of yoga, there are countless anecdotic stories about yogis that were achieving partial or total invisibility under various forms. And uh, again, I'm saying even in the 20th century, the TM was studying it in practical ways, uh, claiming that actually they did obtain some results. It all starts from here. And to understand, let's look again at the text. Because this one can be understood much more than the one with the uh, pratyayas or the other ones which are so, so abstract. When you are at that level, you can understand nevertheless. By performing samyama on the form of the body, one can check the perceptibility and thus there being no more contact with the light of the eye, the yogin can become invisible. 
This is a very complicated sutra. I am not analyzing it in totality. I have preserved for you uh, in this school a commentary from Rama Prasad in one of his studies on Svara Yoga and the Tattvas where he tries to actually describe Rama Prasad even wrote a commentary to Yoga Sutra and uh, he tried to describe from a tantric standpoint how these things are happening to give an energetic explanation and so on. That's why I can simply say that those of you who study Svara Yoga in this school will get <coughs> a much more detailed explanation of the physics or the metaphysics which is involved <coughs> into this statement. But until we reach to that level, let's nevertheless analyze it at the level of this series of lectures and see what can be understood. First of all, you should remember that the form, the form of the body in particular, is an element which belongs to the Tanmatras. In Sanskrit, the form is called Rupa, and it is the visual element, therefore it belongs to Manipura Chakra. At the level of Manipura Chakra, the sense, which in Mulakara is smell, in Svadhisthana is taste, in Manipura it is called form, Rupa, and therefore it is the visual sense of, perceive, of perceiving forms. This sense, therefore, it's normal that if at one end it affects the form, at the other end it affects the one which perceives the form, or the perception of the form, which means therefore the sense of sight. Therefore, it, there is, it is logical that at least conceptually, there is a correspondence between form and the perception of the form, the organ that perceives the form, because they belong to the same energy, to the fire energy, to the Manipura Chakra. Patanjali says, by performing Samyama upon the form, basically, we can hardly see our form. There are two preferred ways in which we can see our form. The best would be, of course, a mirror. But I would like to call your attention that 500 years ago and more, mirrors were a rarity. They were of very poor quality, and only super rich people could afford to have mirrors. The modern mirror, which everybody has in the house, is a miracle of modern technology. It was 100 years ago, and still it was difficult, but 500 years ago it was almost a utopia. People used, instead of mirrors, all kinds of polished surfaces like metals and others in which they would reflect themselves. And again, uh, mirrors were not the way we know them today and also not as perfect. That is why the doing some yama in the mirror, like it would be like you sit or stand naked and look at your form in a mirror. You simply look at the form of your body and it's almost like you would blur your eyes in such a way that you wouldn't see what's inside the form. Imagine that somebody takes a, a photo of you, then starts putting it through a photocopy machine and makes a photocopy of it, and then he makes a photocopy of that photocopy, and the photocopy of that photocopy, and by the time you have done the 10th degree photocopy, you can just see a shadow. 
and then somebody comes and says, oh, this photocopy is so poor, I'm going to take a marker or a pen and try to outline the outline of the body so that people see what it was about in this photo, that there was a guy standing doing I don't know what. That is exactly like you would do. It's like forget about the face, the contents, the clothes, just the form, just the outline. Insist on the form. This kind, this is like a selective concentration. It's like I look, but I don't see myself. I just see the form of myself without being interested in the other details. The same things are happening in yantras and mandalas when you concentrate a lot. Especially the yantras make you perceive archetypal forms. And the other preferred way, which the tantrics of India use, uh, as well, more than the mirror, because again the mirror was not very practical in those days. Today, yes, you can do it with a mirror, very well, but that's why the mirrors were considered magic tools. The mirrors were considered ways of going into another dimension. When the mirrors were still rare, whoever had a mirror, a mirror was like a magic tool, because you could see in it another world which was real and yet imaginary, and all the rest which you might infer or know already. And back to our story. The other way of seeing the form was, of course, a painting or a drawing, like you see in primitive painting and drawing. And finally, another way was looking at your own shadow, casting your own shadow on a wall, on a stone, on the floor, and focusing on the shape of the shadow, like seeing you, from which the tantrics have derived a spectacular technique called Chaya Upasana, that you get to learn when you study Svara Yoga, and which allows them to do some important things. It is called the concentration upon the shadow, the meditation upon the shadow. So one way or another, by simply feeling the form, visualizing the form, because it's an etheric thing, I would like to remind to all of you, the form of your body, such as your nose and fingerprints and all the rest, is given by the etheric body. The etheric body is the formative body. The form is not the quality of Anamaya Kosha. Anamaya Kosha has the five Buddhas, but the Tanmatras, which means the form among them, the element form, is in the etheric level. And that is why it is the etheric body which gives the shape of the body. And therefore, by focusing on the form, we focus upon something which is our etheric body. By focusing on the etheric body, we focus upon the form, because the etheric body is the one which controls the form. And therefore, we control, uh, Patanjali said, by focusing upon this, which means you focus on your etheric body, or you focus upon the mental representation which you have of that, or you focus simply on the form of the body as a symbol of that, as it appears reflected in a mirror, or drawn by somebody, or uh, as it is the shadow, uh, the projection of the shadow, by focusing on the form of the body in one of these ways, and you can invent maybe other ways in which to focus on the form of the body, there results a very peculiar effect upon the visual ether, upon the visual fluid, this element, the fire element, which carries with it form and vision, is disturbed, you can fiddle with it if you do some yama, because then you basically reach at the control of the fire element, 
you reach at the control of this Tejas Tattva. And by reaching at the control of this fire element, then automatically you can produce a strange phenomenon, which I'm going to comment in a second. It is also remarkable then to remember that what I say, this thing about the form, is related automatically with Manipura Chakra. We are talking about a Samyama at the level of Manipura Chakra, something of Manipura Chakra at a certain level of depth of it. And we are talking about the fire element. This Samyama is Manipura, fire and form as uh, perception. That's where it starts from. And then he tries to describe in three words the whole phenomenon which takes pages to describe because it's a whole metaphysical theory about the perception of form and the sense of sight and so on. Briefly, he says, by performing Samyama on this, one can check the perceptibility, that means the perception of the form also, because it's like you emit and somebody receives. Here is my form. I'm projecting it like a video projector and I'm projecting it in this room. And you all are looking at me and seeing my form. Therefore, if I don't project it, you don't see it. That means I can influence this chain of projection and reception, of emission and reception. One emits and one receives. And it says, and thus, there being no more contact with the light of the eye, the yogin can become invisible. Actually, the old perception of the Svara yogis was a little bit like the perception of some middle-aged philosophers from Europe and some of the Greek old philosophers, which said that to see, you actually, there is a light which comes from the eye. It's like the eye is like a snail's eye. It stretches and it touches. It's like your eye goes and touches. So that's why some people say, oh, when that guy looked at me, I felt like he was putting some sticky hands all over me. It's like when somebody puts their eyes on you, they touch you. In the optical materialistic theories of today, this is not accepted because the theory of modern physics is that I see you, your body in particular, because your body emits photons to me. And therefore, you're, there, is, there are sources of light, the sun, the electric bulbs or something, and your body reflects a certain number of those photons, and those photons come to me, and they hit my retina, and thus I'm seeing you. Because the light is coming from you to me, there is no light which comes from me to you. But both in Europe, in the Middle Ages, and ancient Greek philosophers, as well as the Svara yogis from India, they had the theory that there is a missing link in this, and that the missing link is that the eye is scouting the universe. The eye is also launching something, exactly as it would be a sonar ping. The eye is pinging the universe, so it's exactly like I make ping, 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 and thus I see you, because my eye gives off something. This has been actually authentified by yogis and spiritual practitioners in the study of the phenomena of hypnosis, in the, when studying the phenomena of Shambhavi Mudra, materialization, visualization, when studying phenomena such as 
delirium and hallucination, as well as in the study of different hypnotic phenomena, that actually it appears that the eye emanates an energy, an energy related to Manipura Chakra. And that's why people who have a strong Manipura Chakra, they have those hypnotic eyes. The eyes are powerful because there is fire in them. And if the eyes are weak, this shows a weak Manipura Chakra at the same time. So, this being said, <coughs> the yogic theory, the yogic old theory, goes according to this. And it says, when somebody sees somebody else, it's because his eye is scouting and pinging the other, and there comes a response from the other, and in this way the eye gets the knowledge. And here Patanjali says, this link, this feedback between the eye which goes and comes, cannot happen. If you perform samyama on the form of the body, and this is described in Svara Yoga like generating a cloud of the electron cloud, the equivalent of the electron cloud from the quantum mechanics, and there is a whole speculation on that which is not fully authentified or understood in modern science as well. He says by performing samyama on this, that there is no more contact with the light of the eye. The light of the eye reaches, doesn't reach anymore, it is lost like in a cloud, it doesn't encounter anything, and because of this it cannot ping the back and give the knowledge. And therefore the eye is looking, but it doesn't see it. That's the perfect equivalent of the stealth technology of today, where the radar pings, but there is no reflection signal coming back, because the stealth aircraft is made of a, such a geometry and such a material, that it doesn't reflect anything back. And therefore the radar never identifies that there is an aircraft in the air. Exactly in the same way, Patanjali says if you make Samyama on the shape of your body, you become stealth technology. You don't ping back and people cannot see you anymore. It cuts the contact. This does not mean that you dematerialize or you disappear. That's always the big misunderstanding. People have the tendency to believe that, well, if I don't see you, it means somehow you disappear. You may poof, and you are not here. The truth is much more sophisticated than that. The truth means that you are here, but I don't see you. It's exactly like somebody is in a room, and you overlook that person. And then you say, was Walter tonight here? And the other people say, you must be crazy. We are in a room which is four by four, and you are asking if Walter was here. Of course he was here, he was just sitting just near you. I haven't seen him. It's like Walter was practicing Samyama on the form of his body, and that's why he became invisible. He became invisible at least to me. I was unable to pierce his shield. This invisibility doesn't mean that you don't exist physically there. It doesn't mean that you are not there. It doesn't mean that in a photography you wouldn't show up. It simply means, ah, and if you are very strong like those people who do the trick of the rope, sometimes you might not even appear in a photography because you can't even hit the camera. But what normally it means is that the person who does this generates a sort of hypnotic effect by which the others don't see you. It's exactly like you want to go in a group and you are so absorbed into something and you think about your things and the others simply don't see you. It's like you don't want to be there, and you don't want to be disturbed, and you just sit in a corner, and you have this very dark face, and you are in yourself, and you don't speak to anybody, 
And people afterwards, they ask themselves, if you ever were present that night there, because some didn't even see you or can't remember. That's why this is a matter of awareness. It's like you do not generate awareness anymore, because it's like your perceptibility has gone under a certain threshold. And if it is under the threshold, I don't see you anymore. Automatically this says that if you are in the same room with Buddha, Buddha most probably will see you, whatever you do. It doesn't work with Buddha, because this is something about the level of awareness. And somebody who is super aware would look and say, Walter, you are practicing invisibility, bless you, you know, it's kind of, I can see that you have gone under the radar. You have gone so low, you are, you, you are keeping such a low profile that nobody can see you right now. But God can see you. I can also see you because I am practicing an awareness which is a complete presence. So this invisibility is not a magic trick. It is actually something of going under the radar. It is going under the level of perceptibility in which the normal person will simply not notice. It's exactly like you pass with the eye, and I haven't seen you. I'm looking and saying, hey, where, where is Walter? Where? And Walter is right here, no? But I'm not seeing him because I'm looking always elsewhere. This kind of truth is involved in the saying of Patanjali. This truth has been analyzed a lot, and therefore the yogis have analyzed yoga positions, and there is such a yoga asana which develops this kind of manipura, this kind of perception. The yogis have developed techniques of focusing on your own body. The most modern ones are by using a mirror also, concentrating on your form in the mirror, which can generate amazing effects of various kinds, concentrating on your shadow, if not that, even on a painting or a drawing. That's why in the old days, when people were drawing somebody, that was considered magic. And if, for example, you are drawing a Native American, the shamans considered that you stole their soul. That if I'm making a drawing, a sketch of you, I've got your soul entrapped on this piece of paper. And then if I start pricking needles in it or burning it, I can affect you because this is in resonance with you. It's an image of you. So yes, even a painting in the old days, they used it with paintings and others. The Templar knife were practicing an evil type of yoga when, when they wanted to annihilate somebody, they did, I won't tell you, you can discover it in the literature if you are really insisting, but I don't wish to teach you these things in this context, that they were practicing a certain meditation upon a painting of a person that was the enemy of their order. And that person got in trouble or died very soon if they fulfilled some conditions. And therefore even a painting was working, because it's a symbol. That's why the voodoo priests, the voodoo witches, they, or wizards, they practice this thing with the dolls, with the voodoo dolls, which are treated in a certain way, and then they can perform a kind of magic transfer with the help of those dolls. They prick the doll and the person feels it hundreds of kilometers away. And therefore, this kind of uh, element applies as well here, but in another way. And therefore, remember that you can try to focus on the form in so many ways, by visualizing, making Shambhavi Mudra with your own form, 
feeling your etheric body and its form, looking in a mirror, looking at the shadow, having a painting of yourself or a drawing of yourself taken, and taking a photo using a photo. That's why photos are great instruments, and with photos you can do a lot of things. And at the same time, this is involving Manipura Chakra, this is involving the fire element, this is involving the visual sense, and a few other things. And by making, again I said, the yogis even found forms of breathing and positions of the body which contributed to this. And incidentally about this particular element, in these yoga courses you can find the material which is taken from an Indian expert who in the 19th century commented a little bit in his own vision some of these things. And coming back to our story, Patanjali says, therefore, if you concentrate on this till the point of Samyama, you concentrate, meditate, contemplate, and get absorbed into it, you will get to the point where suddenly you can notice that you are invisible. To be invisible is not suddenly like zero to a hundred percent. It's a gradual thing. You can see it if you try to do it in a group, and somebody doesn't see you for half an hour. And after half an hour says, oh, Walter, you were also here. Oh my goodness, I haven't even seen you from the beginning. It's like, you were so discreetly sitting in a corner that you were almost like a ghost. You were like almost half absent from this world. And the more you go into it, the more you get into that state, and less are those, less is the number of those who can perceive you in that state of mind. And if you go to the full Monty and you get completely out of the light, so to speak, then only those who are enlightened can perceive you through a perception of Atman, because only that can go beyond this aspect of the mind. So this being said, this is very clear now. Patanjali recommends the Samyama on the form of the body, which is strengthening Manipura and creating a city at this level. It is up to you to elaborate this idea, and if you are curious to practice this, you will not obtain results immediately. For six months you will obtain no results, and then the first results which you will obtain is that you, when you will practice this, you will notice that some people don't notice you. You start becoming absent from the environment, but it's not yet 100%, it's almost, almost. And the more you practice it, this almost, almost becomes more and more. And the last one for tonight, because it's related to this, here Patanjali has a 20 bis. He feels the need to make a completion, to make an addition, and some other yogis say there was no need to say this one, because now it's obvious. If he said this, the implication is obvious. However, it appears that for the average person, Patanjali had to say it. You can see how many of you would have thought about this one when I read 20 for you. So I read by doing Samyama on the form of the body, there is no more contact with the light of the eye, and therefore one becomes invisible. And number 20, this, which again is absent in some versions, precisely because of this, says, by what has been said, by the same process, the disappearance of the sound and other tanmatras can also be understood. Which simply says, Patanjali says, this is not valid only for fire and manipura. It's valid for all the five senses. So it's valid for all the five tanmatras that you can have the disappearance of smell, 
of taste, of touch, and of sound by the Samyama. So in this way, a Samyama on Muladhara will produce complete perception of the smell tattva, of the smell tanmatra, and it can make absence of smell. That is why some people who perform, who have rising of Kundalini and some phenomena in Muladhara chakra, they in the beginning have the strange experience that they produce very beautiful smells, like in the room where they are, or if they make love the tantric way, or if they do yoga on Muladhara or other things, suddenly in the room where they make, it starts smelling of roses, of incense, of sandal, of something, and nobody has used any perfume or anything. That being an effect of a samyama on the sense of smell, creating or destroying different sensations which become, which pertain to smell. And then uh, there will be like exactly like invisibility or the opposite of it, vision, appearances of some sort. In the same way with the sense of taste, in the same way with the sense of touch, and in the same way with the sense of hearing. It shows that, for example, in some situations, you can improve your sense of touch, as we often describe in the Tantra workshops, where, for example, some people do not feel the pleasure of touch by simply doing some yama on Anahata Chakra. Because if your Anahata Chakra is blocked, then you are blocked in your perception of the touch Tanmatra, of the touch sense or element, and you do not feel the touch, including the erotic touch into it. And therefore, by working on Anahata, you can unblock that, you can sort that out. In this way, you can sort out every chakra. Vishuddha, Anahata, Manipura, Svadhisthana, and Muladhara, and any of the five senses. Normal psychology shows that the human being obtains from the external world 85% of our perceptions through the eyes. That is why the eyes alone are obtaining more input from outside, like six times more than all the other senses together. That means the eyes are super important in terms of how much we get from the world. And that is why Patanjali describes it first for the eyes. Because the perception of the eyes is really shocking, because people say, I believe only what I see. Very seldom people say, I believe what I touch, or I believe what I hear. People say, I believe what I see. So therefore, Patanjali puts it for the sense of sight, but then he says also, the disappearance of all the other tanmatras goes just the same way. Only that you don't have to make samyama on the form of the body, but on the other things, on, the, on a smell, on a taste, on a <coughs> tactile sensation, or on a sound. Now, if you are thinking that the sound, as a subtle sound, is also the nada. Nada is the sound of the sound. That is why performing samyama on the sound, on the shabda tanmatra, is actually like concentrating on the sounds in Laya Yoga. That is why Laya Yoga is nothing else but a form of Samyama on the Shabda Tanmatra, on the sound. And that is why some Laya Yoga can immediately produce some paranormal effect at the level of the Vishuddha Chakra and at the level of the ether of the fifth element. That is why Laya Yoga is such a privileged method because it produces 
Samyama, that's what you try to do. You are trying to identify with the sound which you hear in meditation. That sound is an etheric sound, an astral sound. It's not a physical sound. It's Shabda Tanmatra, essentially speaking. So focusing on sound in general, you obtain a paranormal effect or you are actually performing a Samyama at the level of Vishuddha Chakra. And therefore, you can obtain similar or identical effects, if you want, in terms of the fifth element instead of fire. So, as you can see, some people say, well, it was not necessary to say, it was logical. If it works with the side, it works with the others. Nevertheless, now when I'm reading this for you, you can see that actually it was necessary to say it, because very few have actually thought of the implications. So, um, all in all, this sutra is welcome, 20 bis, in which Patanjali rounds up the understanding of sutra number 20. Sutra number 20 is Samyama on the form of the body as one of the Tanmatras, and being in the etheric body, you kind of start understanding, it's a more concrete object of concentration, and almost all of you can say, hmm, I could go home and try this thing. I think I can try. Yes, of course you can try, and my advice is do try, and if you are systematic and stubborn, you can even obtain some wonderful results from it. And at the same time, remember that it is working on all the five elements. If you focus on the typical element, on the typical sense, on the typical perception of that sense, and the example with Laya Yoga and the sound should be quite clear for you from this standpoint. In this way, we already are reaching to some more down-to-earth meditations, samyamas, even this one is still difficult, and of course they also, all of them have quite spectacular effects. As you are going to see, uh, Patanjali stays at the etheric level, he actually in the next sutra goes a little bit back to the astral level, so the next samyama is a little more difficult than this one, but not as difficult as the first one, and then the further he goes, the more charming, the more thrilling the samyamas become, because he even gives samyamas which reflect on the physical body and on physical things from the universe in which we live. We are going to stop here, we have studied a few samyamas which are exemplary, we actually have studied some of the more difficult ones, the ones which come next time are even more uh, juicy, even more spectacular than this one, and we are going to stop here for tonight. Uh, not before, however, performing another 3, 4, 5 minutes of meditation on Ajna Chakra, so you can absorb finally some of the message and the revelation given by Patanjali in this wonderful text.